Wow. It's really nice to see three Newtons at the back of the church. And I would like to give a warm welcome to Clara, her first time at church. So we're continuing our series on Galatians, the book of Galatians. And before we kick off, I thought it might be helpful for a little bit of perspective, a little bit of perspective. Um, does anybody remember zero AD? So a little bit of perspective in, in, in Christian world, what was happening maybe between zero and 70 AD, or as they now call it, CE? So if we take the birth of Jesus at zero AD, and if we take the death and resurrection of Christ at 33, we pick up this man, the Apostle Paul, persecuting the church, actively killing Christians. And then shortly thereafter, there's this moment recorded in Acts where we know as the Damascus Road experience. And, and Paul has this encounter with Christ that changes his life forever. We know that Paul died approximately 67 AD, uh, and then in 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by Rome, one of the wars between the Romans and Judea. If we zoom into maybe 30 to 50 AD, I, I can't do that, I would love to be able to do that, but not yet. Um, 34 AD, when we read Galatians chapter 1, we read about Paul going into Arabia, so roughly 34, 35 AD, say. And then there was a visit to Jerusalem, again Galatians 1, ministry in Syria and Cilicia, a visit to Antioch, about 45, and then another visit to Jerusalem, say 47-ish AD, and that's the passage that we're referring to today, Galatians chapter 2. Paul then, possible, went on a missions trip for a, a year and a bit or so, and around about this time, we have mail, if we're in Galatia. The Galatians received a letter from Paul. And that is the letter which we are looking at in this series. So, as we progress today, Paul continues his case. And as we get more into the letter, we will see some more practicalities of, of how we ought to live. But these first few chapters of Galatians are really setting up what Paul really wants to say later on. Paul continues the case for the true gospel, continues the case to clarify unity and orthodoxy, and continues to challenge the Judaizers. These are the group of people who entered into these brand new churches in the region of Galatia, and they were encouraging Christians, saying, hey, Jesus isn't enough, you need something more. You need some ceremony, you need some ritual, you need some other processes to ensure peace with God, to ensure salvation. And I want to say that our world is much the same. So Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10, and this is what it says. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. 
While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised. Now, just for the sake of Titus, can we all go, is that okay? Can we just do that? Just join him in that moment? Though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers, false ones really, the modern day translation is idiots, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favourites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as He had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. The word apostle there means the one sent, a sent one. In fact, James, Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognised the gift God had given me and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be still before you this morning, that we would allow your word and your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, that we would take this time right now to be focused and engaged with you. Help us to be attentive to that still, small voice that would speak to us this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Paul is always on about this message. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And so as part of this text this morning, I just want to, I just want to talk about six reflections briefly. And then I want to talk about fear. And I wonder is as we consider these six reflections, you might take something into your week this week, uh, into uh, what's ahead for you. I just saw Meta there. I do believe it's Meta's birthday today. Happy birthday, Meta. Uh, Guten Morgen. Jim can speak the rest in German. The first reflection I want to offer this morning is decision-making. Do you involve God in your decision-making? In verse 2, Paul writes that he went to Jerusalem because God revealed that he should go. Do you know that we serve a God who speaks to us, who reveals himself to us, who will help us to know which way to turn? Have you ever had to face a choice, left or right, A or B, 
one or two, go or stay, port or crows? Have you ever had to face these decisions of choosing one or the other? A moment where you've been challenged and and in some ways not sure what you should do. It's easy when there's a good and a bad. We all know to choose good. But what happens when there's two goods? I don't like those decisions. I don't like choosing between two good things. Do you involve God in your decision-making? Do you have a sense that God will speak to you and, and instruct you and lead you and make it known? Most of us go to the Lord when there is troubles, when we're under pressure, when we need something. But do we give time to the Lord in just our everyday decisions, the small things? When we go to work, Lord, help me go to work today. When we go into a classroom, Lord, help me in the classroom. When we wake up in the morning, Lord, help me this morning in my home. When we walk, Lord, help me be focused on you. Do we involve God in our everyday life and in our decision-making? Because God will speak to us, amen? Do we believe that? You see, I wonder if the Galatians struggled and found it easy to maybe find something else to add to the gospel because maybe there was a time where they waited upon God but God didn't seem to answer you ever faced that before? Well, I want to say today that we ought to involve God in our decision-making. We ought to involve Him and look to Him in everything that we do. The second one is the wisdom of engagement. In verse 2, Paul writes that he met privately. He met privately with some people. What does that mean? That means there was some thoughtfulness around a meeting that Paul was having. Have you ever had a tricky meeting to have and you just had to find the right place at the right time, the right way to say it? Sometimes I've asked Beck for something, I've just got to find the right time and the right place. You know that helps a little bit? Have you noticed that? You're just finding the right moment, the right moment to speak to somebody about something. There's wisdom in engagement and we need God's wisdom when we're engaging people. When we're engaging people with the gospel, we're engaging people in everyday life matters. We need God's wisdom to know how and when. God's wisdom can help us. God's wisdom is practical. God's wisdom is available. We ought to call on it. Lord, help me. Help me deal with my boss today. Help me deal with my spouse today. Help me engage with my grandchildren today. It's important that we seek God's wisdom when engaging. I also note that in verse 4, Paul talks about some issues that I believe were the same where he was in Jerusalem as they were in Galatia. There were some people with Paul who were perhaps spying on him and seeing what he was up to because they had some views about the Jewish rites. Do you know that the same issues that Paul was facing in the churches in Galatia, they were facing in Jerusalem? Is it possible that it's also the same in Adelaide? Is it possible that that really it's the same everywhere? That 
if you've been around for a little while, you just know that the grass isn't greener on the other side. You've been around long enough, you just know that, you know, it might look good over there, but it's not. You know, different names, but same people. I just wonder if, if the world is the same all over. I just wonder if the issues that we deal with in our own hearts are the same everywhere. Are we really that different from people in Bali? From people in America? Well, probably a little bit from Americans, let's be honest. From, from, from people in Europe? Are, we, are people really that different from one place to another? I just know that the gospel truth works wherever it goes wherever it is, whatever people group, whatever culture group, the gospel reaches. Because in the, the day, we're all the same. We're all the same. What Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, he's actually writing to us also. The importance of unity. In verse 2, Paul speaks about how he wanted to make sure that there was agreement with what was being taught in Jerusalem and what, was, what he was teaching. He, he felt so strongly because if it was different, then there was this chance that he was wasting his efforts. He was running his race for no reason. He was possibly starting up something new and different compared to what was happening in, Jeruz- in Jerusalem. You see, unity was very important to Paul. That sense of, 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 of orthodoxy, that sense of the same thing, At the end of the day, there is one Christ, which means there is one body, which means there is one gospel, which means for us, we're all one in Christ. One. There's not two different. There's not another version. There's not a better version and a worse version. There's just Jesus. And these diversions that come into our own lives and into the church to separate us, to cause us to to be separated from other brothers and sisters is simply destructive. And Paul is earnestly trying to ensure that what he is speaking is consistent with what others are speaking, with what others are sharing. The waste of disunity is terrible. When we're busy, not unified, then we can't do the things we need to do together as one. Have you ever been involved in a tug of war? I'll be honest, I was usually the guy at the back that just kind of leant backwards and allowed inertia to play its role. But you know, when you're all pulling together, like in step formation, oh, and everyone takes a step back in the same moment, gee, there's a lot of power. But when you've got those little kids and they're just literally hanging on the rope and you're trying to pull and win this battle and these little kids, and then, you know, your own mother's there leaning on the rope and, and oh, man, gee, it's annoying. They're not pulling in the right direction. There, there's no unity in what is being, uh, is what needs to be done. There's wastage. There's waste. There's a, a loss of energy and focus. Paul is very concerned about unity. In Galatians 3, it says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is passionate about unity. What about influence? I love this little passage in brackets in verse 6 where, by the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me. I love, I love Paul saying that. 
Have you noticed how people change when someone important is around? They put on their posh voice. Yeah? No? We're all the same every day, no matter who's around us. You know, some people change when there is someone of importance near them. Or when there's someone who they perceive can help them get somewhere. Or when they perceive they can be noticed in a way that might help them to achieve something, they change. Have you ever been affected by that? You've set up a little straighter? You've spoken a little clearer? Come on, we're, we're all affected by this, aren't we? So Paul's saying, uh, I, I'm not influenced by them, I'm not pleasing them, I'm pleasing God. Isn't that the formula that we need to please God? And when we please God, we allow ourselves not to be subjected to that sort of influence that might lead us elsewhere. I reckon it's important that we please God in everything we do. After all, we're not working for anyone. We're really working for the Lord, aren't we? Whether we're doing the dishes, setting up communion, vacuuming, whether we're weeding, whether we're sitting watching TV, we're doing it for the Lord, aren't we? I'm not sure if that last one fits, but you get what I mean. The non-need of recognition. In verses 7 and 9, Paul speaks about this recognition that he receives from others. I never read in this passage of Scripture the necessity of recognition. It's not a necessity to be recognised. It's not a necessity to be recognised as the Apostle to the Gentiles. I just don't read that here. But you know what I do read from this passage? I read of the importance of the effect of affirmation. That when someone comes up to you and affirms you and says, hey, you're a son or daughter of Christ. You belong to Him. When someone comes up to you and says, you know what, God's promises are for you. When someone comes to you and affirms you in who you are in Christ, when they remind you of the promises of God, when they just say thank you for being a friend, there is something powerful about affirmation, isn't there? If, how much of your life is spent affirming other people? Could you give a percentage? Could, could, you, could you say, you know what, out of all of the engagements I have with people, I believe that I affirm this often. I just wonder if things would be different for all of us if we all took a step forward in affirming one another. The effect of affirmation is powerful, it refreshes us, it galvanizes us. You can never have enough affirmation. Yet it's not, ne- it's not necessary, is it? it? It doesn't save me. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't you know, cause me to, to really understand the gospel more. No, but gee, it's so refreshing. It's so powerful to be affirmed and encouraged. Paul was affirmed and encouraged in what he was doing. Paul would have left that time in Jerusalem like, yeah, we're together. You're there doing your thing and I'm there doing my thing. So when we have a quiz night at Burnside City Uniting Church and people come from all over the place, there's something affirming about that. That Christians are gathering together to do something, to make a difference on a grander scale. It's very affirming, very 
busy and hard work as well. But gee, it's affirming, isn't it? I just wonder if the Galatians were really facing an undermining of their faith. These are the two towers, the the twin towers, the Patronus towers in Kuala Lumpur. I just wonder if, if these two towers might represent perhaps a sense in all of us of fear that we have, fears of all sorts of things. Or maybe, as, maybe there's a sense of a desire for acceptance, to really be accepted, to feel accepted. And I wonder if, if the push against fear that we take care of ourselves and the pull of acceptance that we desire challenges our faith and trust in God. I just wonder. I just wonder if the, if the Galatians were not convinced enough of the gospel of Christ. There were some fears that were pressed in upon them. There, there, was, there was a fear of your salvation isn't really uh, there fully until you follow certain rituals and processes and procedures. You know what, guys? We all want you to be circumcised. It's not really a word we use in our current language. You know what? You have to follow this process so that when you worship, you know that your worship is accepted. Then you can make sure that you have peace with God. Because Jesus is good, but we just need these other things. I wonder if the Galatians, their faith and their trust in the God was challenged by what was being said to them, by what was being pushed upon them by the fear that God wouldn't accept them. I wonder if their their need to be accepted was overwhelming. You know, sometimes as a Christian, you can be shunned. You know, sometimes people will hate you and it's got nothing to do with you. It's because something of Christ has witnessed to them and they hate you because of Jesus in you. Jesus himself said that. People, People won't like you. Some people will not like you not because of you, but because of me. The need to, to be accepted, to live in a certain way, to, to be subjected to certain things, to fit into our culture. The Galatians were facing this issue so powerfully. I reckon we face the same things. Fear really, really hurts us. Fear worries us. You know, I prayed to Jesus and nothing happened. Jesus still hasn't returned yet. The Bible talks about it. It hasn't happened. You know, is Jesus really there? Fear. Fear that things aren't right. Maybe Jesus didn't hear my prayer because I'm not right myself, because I know I'm a bit of a sinner and I haven't confessed it. Oh man, I'm getting st- maybe, maybe I am rejected. Maybe God has pushed me to the side. Maybe I'm not right with Him. Fear is powerful. Fear is overwhelming. Maybe the truth of the gospel was being overwhelmed by these fears that these new Christians were facing. Fear can still grip us. Mature, wise, senior, experienced Christians. Uh, Joshy was playing footy and... Uh, at Maryville High School, there's this, it looks like a driveway. That's what it looks like to me, but it's not. I reckon it's like the long jump run up. And so there was this new concrete kind of poured there. 
And uh, I was sitting near there watching the footy and I just got up to you know, move around a bit and I noticed, I said, I'm going to have a look and just see what they've done. Because it wasn't there last time. Well, I didn't notice it. And I noticed that there was this new concrete and it, and it was actually connected to some old concrete. And, and so there's, there's my sporting foot there. And you can see the new concrete here and you can see this old concrete here. What I, what I want you to note is this crack that is along there. It, it, it's like when they laid this new concrete, they, they wanted to use the existing concrete. So they wanted to just kind of pour it and, and get it to connect as best as they could. But you know what? You can't get new concrete to really connect well to old concrete. Almost always, you end up with something like this. I have some of this around my house. I have some new concrete next to old concrete. Now, concrete is amazing stuff. It is so hard. It is so versatile. I can do anything to it. It's almost indestructible. It's amazing stuff. But this crack reminds me that the new concrete cannot be added to the old concrete. It just can't be added. You see, if you try and add the gospel to your life, it just ends up like this. It's like I've got my life here and I'm going to add Christianity and the gospel to it and I'm going to try and join it together. I tell you now, there's always going to be a crack. There's always going to be something not quite right. Or if you're adding something to Jesus in your salvation, it's like trying to add concrete to your life. It's just going to be a crack. There's going to be holes there. There's going to be cracks. It's not going to look right. You see, the true gospel is this, that it's not a gospel that's added to us. It's Christ that's alive in us. It's that we have died to ourselves, that we've been crucified with Christ and, and we have said we are no more, now Christ is. And so in the true gospel, there is no two sets of concrete. There's just Christ and we're in Christ. There isn't two bits of concrete, two lives trying to live together. But here's the problem. I think that's how lots of us live our lives, including me. There's still parts of my old ways of thinking and parts of my old value system and parts of my own selfishness that exists here. And the gospel is budding right up there because I haven't destroyed this yet. I haven't let go of some of those things yet. And there's cracks there. There's cracks there. You see, with the gospel, it's no longer me. There's new ways to think about other people. There's new ways to spend my time. There's new ways to act. There's, there's new actions to take because of the gospel. There's new words to say because of what Jesus has done in me. There's new prayers to pray because of Christ. There's new ways to spend my resources and spend my time because of Jesus. There's new ways to see my neighbours and to see my community and to see my workplace because of the gospel. The Beatitudes continue to challenge us because it's only living in the true gospel can we really live up to the, what the Beatitudes are all about. Otherwise, it just seems so hard and so impossible because what we're trying to do is essentially butt the gospel up to our life and there's a crack. And there's a crack. And here's the problem with the crack. People notice it. They notice cracks. Have you ever noticed that for the Christian, if you don't get everything quite right, gee, they point the finger at you pretty heavy. 
You notice that? You notice that? Oh, it's because of the cracks. There's cracks. When we just try and push the gospel up against our lives, rather than entering into the true gospel of saying, no, I'm, I'm dead. I'm only alive in Christ. I'm only going to live for Him. That's the only way. It's like, it's like you're trying to build a house on two different foundations. It's like you're trying to build your house on a bit of rock that we know is Jesus and the sand as we know is my ways. I can tell you now that that house is going to be unstable. Uh, if anyone's building a new house and you're going to lay a new foundation, you're probably going to lay one whole fresh foundation. Uh, if I was looking over at Nick right now, he'd be doing that. You're not going to use the old foundation to then butt up against. I want to finish with this picture of uh, Monsters, Inc. And uh, Josh, he's in the back corner there. When Josh was little and Anna was little and Mia was little, we had the issue of monsters. Do you ever face the issue of monsters? They'd be going to sleep and part of the dilemma was monsters in the room. There's monsters there. There's, you know, someone's going to eat me. Someone's going to get me. There's monsters. Is anyone here next to a monster right now? There's monsters. There's monsters, Dad. And so we would go through this, this, this process, and it's one of my favorite memories, go through this process of dealing with the monsters in the room. And as we would deal with the monsters in the room, one strategy I had once was to, was to shoot them with, with a laser gun. And so we would sit there together in bed and I'd say, okay, when you see one, tell me and we'll shoot him together. And so we'd shoot these monsters. They were all over the place, hiding behind you know, cabinets and we'd get special bullets that can bend around corners and we'd, we'd bounce laser beams off mirrors and all sorts of crazy quantum physics stuff that they had no idea about. And it was just wonderful. We killed so many monsters. The, you know, we got high score every time. But then at one stage, that didn't really get to be enough. And so I was racking my brain, how, how can we do this? How can we do... I know. Wherever you think there's a monster, let's go check it and see if it is. Let's, 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 let's be accountable to the fears that we have. Let's confess the fear that we have and let's do something about it. So we went through a process of, of checking everywhere. Oh, I think there's something under the bed. Let's hop out and look under the bed. Maybe just behind that part of the bed. We must have scared him away, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's check in the drawer. Let's open up the cupboard. Let's look behind the, the, the teddy box. Let's, that little crack in the wall, there's those really small monsters that can sneak through the cracks in the wall. So we, we you know, had a spy with them with a torch. And, and you see, I knew there was no monsters there before. In case you're thinking, this guy needs help. I knew there was no monsters, but the truth is my kids didn't trust me. They didn't trust me. They didn't believe what I was saying. I mean, can you believe that? Is this the most believable face you've ever seen? Okay, let me say it again. Is this the most believable face you've seen today? Okay, yeah. Well, I, I thank you, Nev. That's one. So, so they don't believe me. So I'm doing these things so that they'll believe me. I'm... I'm I'm doing these processes so that because they don't believe me, they'll, they'll be satisfied in themselves and, and, and go, yeah, there really are no monsters here. It's safe now. now. You see where this is going, don't you? 
Because another disciple called Thomas, he had the same problem. He didn't believe either. And in the book of John, it records that I will not believe that Jesus is alive unless I can see him and touch him. And Jesus appears in the middle of nowhere, in a, in a room, just comes out of nowhere. He says, hey, fellas, Thomas, it's time. And, and Thomas reaches out and he touches Jesus and he puts his hand into the holes where the nails went through and touches his side and he says, my Lord, my God, it's you. And Jesus never has a crack at him, never says, Thomas, you're a doubting Thomas. That's something we Christians have given him. Jesus just says, bless you, mate. But blessed are those who believe me but haven't seen me. That, that is what Paul is writing about. That is what Paul is on about here. Do you trust God in spite of what you're seeing? Do you believe Him in spite of what you're feeling? Because if you don't, I promise you this, you will put processes in place, whether it's shooting monsters with a fake gun, whether it's checking every corner of the room, you will put processes in place. You will try and add to Jesus. But Paul is simply trying to preserve the true gospel. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. I wonder what, I wonder what your monsters are in your room. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, those monsters that are in our space, those cracks as we have tried to keep our life and put your life next to ours. Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender to you again, to surrender the necessity, to surrender the, the, the need to control to surrender the idea that, that there's still something for us to do. Lord, bring us back. Preserve for us the true gospel, that it's just Jesus and that's all that matters. Lord, strip everything else away from our lives. Lord, strip it away and cause us to really stand on the rock. Let the rock be the only place where we build our lives. Lord, I pray that we would no longer need to shoot the monsters and to search the room because, Lord, we just trust your word, which says there's no monsters. There's just Christ. It's just me. It's just life. Just love. Just peace with God. Just salvation. Lord, help us to hear your voice this morning. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Uh, 